Hello, hello, this is the Flick Lab once again. The Flick Lab is with a focus on informative content and analysis, still with humor. No subjects are off limits, we love to insert our pinkies all over the place. It's only fair, balanced views and all that jazz. And that goes for the genres that we cover. We don't want to limit the genre, we watch everything in this show. The show is hosted by a media pro, Garri, that's me. And a total cinephile, Henrik. Mr. Co-host, are you still alive? Have you survived the massacres so far? Survived this franchise. So here yeah. we are. Here we are at the end of this road until the next year when they punch out the next sequel to Halloween. So it looks like. <clears throat> yeah, the movie made money. And now it's gonna be like gazillion more Halloween films. Yeah, I'm... Really looking forward to this episode, but at the same time, I can't wait to get this over and done with. No, 11 episodes of pure Halloween. Yeah. Now, who, whose brainchild was that? <laughs> I, I was just about to ask the exact same question. Like, <laughs> who demanded that we do this? Yeah, that's the undersigned me. But hey, we've got some beer. Red wine here. Estrella de Levante. Some very basic beer from Murcia, España. I myself am grubbing down Pata Negra, which I, I've taken is pretty good brand of red wine. Haven't tried it yet myself, but you know, I go with the recommendations here with this one. Yeah, I hope this will be enough to survive this episode and... Uh... Move on, finally. <laughs> I can't wait. But remind me to hold my horses next time when I'm talking about doing some kind of a series. <laughs> I make no promises here. <laughs> oh, but all things considered, it's been pretty enjoyable and beneficial. We have basically had our hard special forces training. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone through the mud, head down to the floor in Halloween 6, and we've endured it all. And now it's time for the final test. Yeah, it was kind of a quite, well, I don't know what word to use. Maybe exciting, in a sense, to visit all the movies in a such of a short time period. Kind of a back-to-back, the entire franchise, instead of how I usually watch them, which is I pick my favorites and just rewatch them, and not touch any of the other entries in this franchise at all. Yeah, still, even though I have seen most of these movies gazillion times, I always find something new. And the more I grow up, the more different type of things I find there. So yeah, it's been fine. Today's film takes us back to Haddonfield for one last freaking time. For now, I'm sure the evil just can't stop finding his darn way back to this podcast. Hey, what you gonna do? Halloween 2018, go ahead. No, no, already dropped that. It was a bad pun on your words, and the moment has gone. <laughs> when they come for you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reimagining, 
the soft reboot, the back to the roots, the revitalizing, uh, the recalibration. This latest movie discards every single sequel we have talked about in this podcast. Yeah. Yet it nods in the direction of every single sequel we have talked about in this podcast. But we'll get to that. <laughs> I can't wait when you start to draw parallels between this one and Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> well, hmm. Yeah, we're going to have an interesting time with that because I tried really hard to look for the parallels because they said that they would be referencing every single movie in this franchise. Okay, I completely missed that statement and went with an 100% open mind into this movie and did not actually know prehand to be, uh, keep my eyes open for, you know, the nods to the previous installments. Yeah, let's talk about that in a totally separate section. There's a bunch of those. And anyway, now we have to pretend that all the sequels we talked about for over two months never existed. That's kind of an easy thing that this is not the first time that fucking Halloween has rebooted itself. Not like, at all. This yeah. could be said to be like the fifth or the sixth uh, reboot in some sense. In some sense, yeah. I counted this like the third reboot. Like age okay. 20 discarded basically anything that had happened since Halloween 2. Well, technically already Halloween 4 was also a reboot since it discarded mm. Halloween 3. Uh, then there were the Rob Zombies that discarded pretty much everything that had happened and like... This is a movie everybody was kind of uh, excited about some aspect when this one came out. Some were extremely excited about this being a reboot of the franchise. Uh, the franchise having seen numerous reboots already. Some were excited that Jamie Lee Curtis is finally returning to the franchise. Despite that Jamie Lee Curtis had already returned to the franchise on previous entries, so that was also rehashing something that was done. Some were excited that uh, John Carpenter is finally doing something for the franchise. John Carpenter had returned for Halloween 2 and Halloween 3 previously, so that was also something that was not purely for this one, for this entry. Yeah, even we could start from Halloween 2 all the way back because basically the first Halloween was never meant to have a sequel but they did it so it's a sort of a some kind of a retcon in its way and Halloween 4 obviously discards the ending of Halloween 2 basically and just goes full on ahead ignoring everything then H2O of course then Resurrection does the big one retcon then Rob Zombie reboots the whole thing and now we're finally here. Yep. God yeah, damn, I, what a mess, actually. <laughs> it's a, yeah, man, it's a total mess when you think about it. Like, this really knackers into the believability. It's just at the point where it's so unbelievably messy that many people, I can't blame them, probably have lost their interest a long time ago. Yeah, th- uh, this is the reason why instead of Halloween, we should have just done Friday the 13th. As a franchise, since they do not make the exact this exact same mistake, they just make the same goddamn movie over and over again. That's true. Now, there is one moment where, or maybe two moments, if I remember, where Jason is supposed to die, and then they just say, "Ah, I didn't really die," but they 
kind of have this self-parodyish way to deal with it, and it just keeps on going, and that's all you can do at that point, in fact, and Well, th- there, there is, you know, to counter that point, there is also the moment where Jason really does die, and then just completely random guy eats his heart and becomes the new Jason. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, th- th- that's something that they should have done in Halloween. <laughs> I had my big reservations for this movie, needless to say. This new film is a direct sequel to the very first John Carpenter's original. And what could possibly be worth the trouble to tamper with the series timeline for so many times, for the, let's say, a fifth time. Then again, if you were to make a new Halloween movie, what could possibly be the alternative route to take? Yeah, you really can't actually, like... Halloween Resurrection burned all the bridges that this one could have taken. Even though Resurrection kind of ended in a way that you could have picked off from the ending of the Resurrection. It was such of a bad film that would have been a complete suicide. And you can't really, on the same vein, go back to the Thorn Cult happenings and shenanigans. Those are... Resurrection and Thorn Cult are kind of a plot points and moments in the franchise that are just best left untouched. This is a pure rumor, but I did hear that in his last moments, Mustafa Akkad was still looking for a way to tie it all together, all with the man in black and all with the thorn cult and kind of trying to make sense of all of it. And wow, that would have been the resurrection continuation. I, I, <laughs> you know, it must feel a little bad because you're you have devoted your like half of your life for this franchise, and deep down inside, you know that you did a lot of mistakes, <laughs> but you refuse to let it go, and you just cling on to this thorn. Yeah, but still, it's a thorn that actually makes you decent amount of bank account every single time, even even when the movies fall face flat. And are kind of uh, to be considered as failures uh, budget-wise. And not making the money that you were expecting to get from them. They still managed to do a decent money. So that at least that fall is not too hard on you. Yeah, the resurrection opening was really bad. And it's one of the worst performing movies. In fact, I have the statistics right here. Best gross Total in USA, obviously Halloween one from John Carpenter, hundred and eighty-one million dollars for the first Halloween. We do not have an opening weekend information for USA, but the best opening weekend USA for Halloween was was Rob Zombie's H1, and now it is Halloween 2018 with the staggering, um, I believe, seventy-five million dollars on its opening weekend. Rob Zombie was 37 million, so think about that for a second. So by far, the most successful opening for... Actually, isn't it the second best opening for a horror film ever, right after it? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's that's really making you money home. Yeah. And that's really me actually getting really close. The money is still coming in for this movie. But, you know, when it comes to the moment when we made the, our estimates on how this will fare on monetary-wise, this movie, it looks like that I actually managed to get this one right. 
At least at the moment it's 106 million, so I'm already in the error margin that I'm completely fine and okay with. If the box office stays at 106, in that case I would be like 14 million off on my estimate, and I'm completely okay living with that. That's an acceptable error margin for me when it comes to movie box office. But I still might actually get it there. Just go and make that money, Halloween 2018. Prove me right. Right, yeah, yeah. So it's over 100 million at this point. Yep. So yeah, that's impressive. And I do not exactly remember what I was estimating for it to be. But was it in like a 50 million ballpark? So quite off. You were much closer. So congrats. Yeah, so, you know, Hollywood, whenever you want to have estimates on does your movie make make its money back and how much it's going to bank on box office, just, you know, drop us a hint. Call us on this podcast. Yeah. All right. So it happened that David Gordon Green started to helm the new project. His most notable works are Joe, Prince Avalanche, Pineapple Express, all the real girls and George Washington. I've managed to see all of them actually and a couple of others as well. Perhaps I've most enjoyed Joe. Have you seen it? I I have. Uh, I've seen it once. And that's yeah. pretty much the only David Gordon Green film that I have seen. I tried to watch Your Highness <laughs> like like three years after it had, had its theatrical run and I managed to make it to, like, the first 15 minutes. And after that, I was like, fuck this. And just quit the movie. Right there, then and there. And haven't touched another David Gordon Green production before Joe ever since. Yeah, you have managed to pick the worst David Gordon Green movie as your uh, first one. That I've heard as much. Like People have said a lot of good things about Pineapple Express and Prince Avalanche. And I even got a few positive statements for Manglehorn, which was the Al Pacino film. That I haven't seen, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I... Well, Your Highness did have Natalie Portman. Like, that was the selling statement for me, picking up that movie and... Really couldn't. I have to say, that film was a goddamn train wreck. But again, what did I expect choosing an American comedy? <laughs> but Joe was relatively good slow burn indie drama film. I was definitely positively surprised when I finally saw Joe. In Pineapple Express, I liked the laconic humor and the sense that the humor was just. Obviously, plainly so stupid and in your face. So I laughed. <laughs> I don't know. I usually don't laugh to comedies, but there was something. It was so, so at base level. It was so stupid. Yep. Now, after seeing Halloween uh, or Gordon Green's new Halloween, I guess I, at, I I have enough faith in the man to give Pineapple Express a go at some point. Yeah, I will say that. It really splits the audience once again. So you might like it, you might hate it, you might be neutral, but that's life. How was the premiere in Finland? Anything to note? 
It was surprisingly booked, actually. Like, yes. I was on the road when I saw this one. I was traveling in Turku. I had some mandatory trainings to go through. So I, I spent the entire Friday when I finally got the chance to see this one. I had spent the day on trainings and the theater I had booked my tickets, which was one of these more expensive cinema experiences. And it was actually, I, I would say the theater was full, <laughs> or a, at least on my showing of the film. Yeah, same here in Murcia. Yeah, Very lively. Which, yeah, which is surprising because that's something that, unless it's something like the new Star Wars or the new Harry Potter film or something from Marvel, usually never happens anymore in Finland, especially on these big theaters or on these big halls. Yeah. Halloween went through a lot of development hell. So there was a lot of scripts, ideas, projects, long journey to get to DGG. There was even some talk about Halloween 3D, and hmm, sounds like we want to avoid that. First ideas for the DGG movie here, or David Gordon Green, was to reshoot the ending of the first Halloween, yeah, where Michael would have killed Loomis. And this is where John Carpenter chimed in and instructed against it. He said that the fans would hate it, and how right he was. Like, from the get-go, I was definitely in the mindset that... You can obviously continue the story from the original, but please, for the love of God, just leave the original alone. After a test screening, uh, the audience wasn't wholly impressed with the ending of this new movie, so they reshot the ending. Apparently, the entire end battle was reshot, so the reshoots were bigger than I had thought. And according to a source, which may or may not be accurate, but... It probably is accurate. Do you remember the trailer or the teaser trailers where Laurie and Michael are, are having the knife battle in the front lawn of the house? Or on the front lawn anyway? There was like a one, two second clip where you could see that they were outside and this uh, Judy Greer character was protecting Allison. And meanwhile, Laurie was having a face off with Michael. So apparently it goes like this, that they have this big face-off, they stab Michael, Judy Greer shoots Michael, and then it just gets really bloody, and finally Michael falls down on the front lawn. Then they leave with the car, and at the end of the movie, Michael, once again, in his typical style, stands up, and that's the movie. I don't know, these, these both endings are perhaps kind of weird. We'll get to the actual ending, what they decided on. So the movie starts in the asylum, where Michael has been now for 40 years. And these two podcasters from England, lively old England, are giving a pass to see Michael in the checkerboard area outside. And Michael is chained. The podcaster shows the mask. He's trying to get Michael to talk for some reason. And then we got to the starting titles. Starting titles is nice. They are using the retro font from the original, and they have finally brought back the pumpkin, which I believe is a combination of some digital editing, of course, and time-lapse video reversed. Somebody said that it's CGI, but uh, I, I don't think so. 
I got the impression that it was just a rotting pumpkin that they have shot and played on rivers. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was exposed to some hot air to make it melt like that. Who knows? Well, how do you overall feel about the fact that Michael has been now a captive for 40 years and does this take some of the boogeyman element for you away? I already made the case that this will happen. Because this movie forgets all the sequels that had previously come out. Yeah, it humanizes Michael. Yeah, it does humanize him. Uh, also, with the same way the shots that they show you of Michael in the first sanitarium scene, you can see in the first shots that Michael Myers is being presented more humane here. They expose parts of his face in uh, several locations, in the courtyard and in the toilet. Yeah, and they still have that busted eye, which you get a glimpse of. Mm. But at the same time, as this humanizes Michael, it also brings up the problem. And I I did say that this is going to be a problem. That the body count, once it drops, it really kind of takes away some of the boogeymanness of Michael Myers because the body count in the original film is just a couple of people. And to this movie's credit, the film does acknowledge that fact. The film does not acknowledge that fact. In it fact, does. It, it acknowledges that Michael Myers killed five people, according to Laurie Strode. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah, there could have been like an off-screen kill back in 78, who knows. But the official kill count is four people. There's still the Michael's sister. Uh, yeah. You, you, yeah, you have to count that one also in the kill count total. Yeah, okay. I guess that works. Okay. Yeah, but but the film does, in fact, it does acknowledge it two times during the runtime. The first one is Miles Robbins' character, Dave, who points out that basically whatever Michael did all those years ago is pretty mediocre and not a big deal these days. There is a nudge towards, you know, school shootings and everyday tragedies and how they are more devastating than Michael's original killing spree in the first film. So there is that. It's brought up pretty quickly. And the second one is constructional from film's part in a way that Michael actually tops his original kill count here before the first hour mark. We have a problem with the constant obsession with the main characters. In this movie, the obsession is created by the podcasters who set up Michael and Laurie as the counterparts like Ice and Fire or something like that. I think it's unnecessary to bring it straight to your face because what worked in the first movie was when things were not said aloud. Here it's brought into your face. It's the same thing when Dr. Sarton later reveals his Michael obsession. It's similar actually in that sense to the style of Halloween 6. Not saying that the movies are otherwise, in any sense, comparable. Uh, But in here, the whole obsession angle kind of plays a major plot point. Yeah. I would not hold it against this film, since basically Laurie Strode's entire character arc here is tied around her obsession over Michael. And he does not return that obsession, in fact. 
It's a no. one-sided obsession. It's it's completely one-sided obsession, and that's something that's really great and and a well kind of a constructed element in this film. It leads into a quite a big problem towards the end in the form of Dr. Sartain. Basically, when it comes to the plot twist at the end, it's worth of the point that this movie makes about obsessions and about Michael and returning Michael to the blank slate that everybody has been gushing over that he should be all along. So, yeah, if you want your blank slate, your unknown Michael Myers whose motives are completely abstract and never in any way brought up or made clear to you, this is kind of the road that you have to go through. Kind of, but not quite, because once again, in another sense, this movie also brings it completely to your face that he is mortal. He gets shot several times and you see... I think you see him bleed and if not, you see him genuinely suffering from those blows. And this is what you would not see in a Carpenter film because he would keep it in the background. You would not be quite sure what is going on. Did he get shot? Did he get shot in the right places? Arteries, heart? Except you completely see him getting injured and flinching from injury in the Carpenter film. Yeah, you see see in the end, kind of. You don't really see where he's getting the blows, though. Uh, You see Laurie stabbing him into the neck which immediately causes him to flinch backwards and seize his attack. And later on you see Loomis putting six bullets into him and him falling down the balcony. Like, you you can't really stretch out that. He takes all that fucking damage and then just walks it, walks it off and is completely everyday man. You can do that once. You could survive that if the shots were not put into the correct places. I could buy that. But you they are still torso shots as you see from how Michael flinches when he gets shot. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's just the amount of shots that he suffers in this particular movie that kind of throws it off and in a way logical wise prevents any kind of sequels from here on. But as we know, money talks. Well, you know Burning Alive didn't stop Michael Myers in the original Halloween 2, so why would firework here either? Like, Michael has been made out of pure asbestos in every film except Halloween Resurrection, and he did not come back <laughs> for a direct sequel after that, so you could kind of say that, especially with, you know, Rob Zombies and this one being reboots, you could say that Michael Myers burned to death in Halloween Resurrection. So no asbestos, because asbestos would actually save Michael Myers' life, as it did in Halloween 2. Yeah, after opening titles, we get to the courtyard to the building of Laurie Strode, where the podcasters come and try to have an interview with Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode is not too excited about this fact. Gives something such that the boogeyman is real and you should believe in the boogeyman. You should. But they'll be on their way pretty soon. And after that, we introduce the Judy Creer family dynamics. And we get this quote. I got peanut butter on my penis. 
there's some pretty good humor in this one. There was a lot of complaints from some people that the humor was interfering with the movie. I'm not saying that this penis joke is funny, but there's something here. In my opinion, it was not distracting at all and it didn't take away from the terror. But apparently some people do not agree with me, so uh, that can't be helped. Yeah, and it does work as a good build-up or for the ending of the film. Mm-hmm. In a sense that they do present the mousetraps here and you, you get the first presentation and it finally pays off at the end of the film when it turns out that there is even bigger mousetrap for Michael. They make great effort to get rid of the brother-sister storyline here because they have a specific scene even for this where they try to try their best to retcon it and saying that it was not her brother, it was just some shit that some people made up. Yeah, it's the second kind of a step against the sequels that this film takes. It's okay on its own right, in a sense, but like I said, getting rid of the brother-sister angle and returning Michael Myers into the unknown blank slate that he is, it does once again present the problem that the rest of the film has to deal with, which is that Michael is completely uninterested about anyone in the film. There's a specific point I want to bring out that Halloween 1978 does differently. Michael kind of salivates on his victims. He stalks them beforehand for a long time before he does his attack. So there may not be a specific reason why he chooses his victims, but he just sees something that seems to interest him and he stalks, he looks for the perfect moment, and then he strikes like Thunderball. No, but he strikes, and in this movie, he's shown as somebody who just still randomly goes to a house, but the victim is not particularly selected, it's just some victim, and he just goes directly, walks all the way, and then just kills her or him immediately. So there is not that kind of a build-up, except in a few scenes. This movie is kind of tonally all over the place. There is this where he just goes in, marches, kills, slaughters... And uh, in the beginning, this first kill, this, let's call it the Elrod kill, she is killed off-screen. But uh, gradually, or depending on the scene, really, they show the gore or they don't show the gore. A complete contrast to M- Mrs. Elrod is in the end when Michael just <laughs> puts his leg over Dr. Sarton and his whole head goes into mush. Yeah, but uh, once again, wasn't it... Kind of was the hallmark aspects of the first one, the lack of on-screen violence and the lack of shown carnage in the film. Yes, indeed. But this movie doesn't seem to know where it's kind of standing. It tries to be like the teenage-friendly slasher, but at the same time, I understand, of course, why he would do that. But he has the teenage slasher, and then he has, especially in the beginning... He has good drama. Yeah, it looks almost like a documentary in the first frames when they entered the asylum. It's very slow, very realistic. Then there's the problem with the different focus points that this movie brings up. There is Laurie and Michael, then there is Laurie and Judy Greer, and then there is Judy Greer and the daughter Allison relationship. Then there are these random characters. Karen has this husband that 
basically does not serve any purpose in the film. Uh, he's just, once again, cattle. And a weird character. Weird lines. Kind of annoying. No particular purpose. You could have made this movie focus better in the what matters if you would have had less characters and keeping the people, like in the original, more in the same locations. Like Laurie is inside her house, baking cakes or whatnot. Then but somehow Michael, Michael comes there and they face off. And even better than that, even better than that would have been that the final showdown happens nowhere near Laurie's apartment. Because Michael has no reason to get there. He doesn't care. So as we see here in the movie, Laurie is stalking Michael, trying to find him, has her revolver or gun, and finds him, shoots him, loses him. They could have continued from there in those locations. But then they establish unbelievable setups. They, they are so desperate to get Michael to chase Laurie to her house that they make the most unbelievable thing of this movie, which is Dr. Sartain reveal as some kind of a psychopath who just so, like once again, so desperately wants to know what is going behind that mask and to make him speak. And that is our vehicle to get Michael into the Laurie Strode building. Yeah, but you know, if if you want to get Michael to the Laurie Strode building... I don't. Which you kind of have to, to make Laurie Strode in any way sensible character in this film. That's the thing. This movie doesn't really need Laurie Strode to anything. There's no point for them. Apart from the fact that they have been in the movie franchise before and they are interesting characters... But there is no real link to Michael Myers in any shape or form. No pun uh, intended. They need the character to bring up the point of of the results of traumatic experiences on a person. This is something that was touched upon on Rob Zombies. Halloween 2, you hated it in there also. But at some point you just, you know, have to kind of acknowledge the fact that Characters survive Halloween films, and once you acknowledge that, you kind of have to ask what happens to those characters afterwards. Yeah, and, and I like the approach here. The trauma aspect is nice. What I'm just saying is, as much as we love this character, and as, as much as there is some very good dramatic moments, good drama from David Gordon Green, you know, still there is this lack of linkage between these characters, which Dr. Sartain and perhaps the podcasters try desperately to artificially make in between them, that Michael exists only because he perhaps wants to kill Laurie Strode, which doesn't make any sense, and Laurie Strode is living in this fear also, kind of chained to her own uh, apartment in this case, because but of the same thing. But in this film, Laurie Strode is the only one who is interested in killing the other of the Michael-Laurie dynamic. Like, yeah. Michael has no clear interest in killing Laurie at no point of this film. What Michael ends up doing is is putting every other possible target in front of Laurie throughout the film to a point where in their first phase off Michael even just walks away from Laurie because he's so disinterested in her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, from the get-go I was mostly very interested that and kind of happy that they were removing the family link. But here we see that 
it is just not so simple that you you just don't remove the family link and then try to pull off unnecessary linkages anyway. I mean, wasn't this the whole point here that you don't try to do this? So I the whole point was bring Michael to back to being a blank slate. And the problem yeah. with blank, blank slate is that you can't do that much with it. Yeah, I, I give it to you. It's very restraining. First Halloween was supposed to be a standalone, and it worked so well as a standalone. And as we have ad nauseum gone through in this podcast, how limited the scope, the space is where you can move Michael around. And this is what kind of we have here in 2018. And I would say that 2018 pulls it off quite spectacularly in the end, seeing what they had to go on. To begin with. I would have made so many different moves here. I'm, I'm not a director, not a real director anyway. But I would have, I'm surprised by how much they get right here in my world and how much they get wrong here in my world. The biggest problem I have here is the Dr. Sartain bullshit moment. But you need Dr. Sartain bullshit moment to get Michael Myers to the Laurie Strode house and you have to get Michael Myers to Laurie Strode house so that Laurie Strode herself does not look like complete fucking jackass at the end of the film. Like, what? Dr. Sartain brings Michael Myers to, to face off Laurie Strode just so that Laurie Strode can save a face. I don't understand, because they could have had their face off anywhere in Haddonfield except in this house. It's the same thing in Halloween too. Except they have they, they they are in the hospital. What's wrong with that? You could have had a different setting. No problem. First off is the problem that they can't find Michael Myers in this film because since Michael Myers is acting as a blank slate and without any sensible motivation for what he does, he becomes way too random in his actions and in his movements, uh, so that they could actually tacticalize and pinpoint a location where to face off with Michael Myers. And the second problem comes in form of how far Laurie Strode herself took her preparations for Michael, which went so off the walls that if they would have finally faced off somewhere in the streets of Haddonfield, Basically, that still would not have justified all the lengths that Laurie Strode took on her preparations throughout these years. And that's another thing, because 40 years is a long, long time to be obsessed about Michael and preparing at the gun range. And still to be so obsessed about it, yeah, there's some viability problems in this plot. And don't get me wrong, the drama is great. Well, then again, you know, this is supposed to be the one marking moment in Laurie Strode's life. The one moment that she actually really carries with her as a character. I really like the moment when Laurie comes to have the drink uh, in the restaurant with Alison and Karen and all that. There's some good moments there. David Gordon Green is a good director. He gets, I think, Great performances out of the actors. Small nuances that I liked in this scene. So that is all good. But I also like the bus scene. That is one of the more memorable scenes. And I liked it very much. Until 
Dr. Sartain comes and says that he was actually the one that organized the whole bus crash thing. But I wasn't supposed to know that. Don't tell me. Just, yeah, you, kind you of didn't need to do that. You have to give some kind of a... No. Well, someone has to organize the bus crash in the end. It has to be a complete accident, which, well, seeing the wreckage at the crash site kind of gives no indication to you that it was, or then it pretty much has to be Dr. Sartain. It's the same thing as in Halloween 4, and even more so in the original cut without the added headbangings inside the ambulance. And remove that, that headbanging, and you just see the aftermath, which you also see in the final cut, in the river where the ambulance is in the water. You don't know exactly what happened. You kind of do, but you don't exactly know what happened. And the same execution should have taken place here. But it does take place here. You don't know how the kind of a bush grass in the end went down. You do get get confirmation that Dr. Sartain took part in the crash. But why? 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 That's unnecessary. Because who else would have crashed the bus? Michael Myers is in chains and has been for the past 40 years. Like, you, ca- you can't pull off that Michael Myers simply now all of a sudden manages to break a steel chain, free himself and crash the bus that is guarded by at least one guard and Dr. Sartain himself. This is what I'm talking about. You're not supposed to know exactly what happened there. And now, because Dr. Sartain is the organizer of all this, it takes out... Definitely, it superhumanizes Michael. He's just some poor old lad who kind of needs help to get out of the chains and get out of the bus. Uh, You're not supposed to know. That's how you do it the carpenter way. But you do actually know it even in the example that you gave on the Halloween 4, even if you would cut off the scene where Michael finally breaks his ties and starts his rampage on the ambulance. Because once again, the crash site obviously tells you that it was Michael who broke out. That's true, yeah. But there was no Dr. Sartain to help him out. No, but then again, it was just one simple ambulance transfer with simple ties. So, breaking out from that ambulance is much more easier than breaking out from from the escort bus here in 2018. Yeah, well, if I would have done this edit, I would have not told anything. But yeah, but once again, that kind of uh, automatically leaves it to the point where you make the case that Michael was the one who broke out and caused the bus crash. Perhaps. It's left to your imagination. Not, not that much when you look at the crash site that's being shown to you. And that's what the audience thinks in their head when they see the bus crash. They assume that it's Michael, but oh, it's Dr. Sartain. Yeah, but th- again, you know, how, how the hell could it possibly be just Michael in those surroundings? That's, that's what you have to think yourself with that- a nice cup of coffee in a yeah. summer night. Yeah, and now you think with yourself... How did Dr. Sartain actually organize the bus crash, managed to get a drop on the guard driving the bus, and how he did manage to make it so that Michael would not kill him once he exits the bus? What bus crash? Anyway, 
Well, then we get to the scene where the podcasters face their fate. That's tragic. Then again, we are talking about podcasters here. Yeah, I can. I I feel their pain very much. Speaking uh, in this booth, I think that they got just what was coming for them. Like, for fuck's sake, these are podcasters, the lowest yeah, of the low, the abysmal, abysmal form of any kind of life. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I actually like the this woman character played by Ryan Reese, Dana Haynes. Dana, one of the more likable characters, bites the dust. But I like that in the sense that it makes the kill more meaningful. This character meant something to you, at least for me. I feel it. We have lost something. That that, that works. That's fine. And this toilet scene is quite clearly a throwback to H2O. That it is, that it is. Yeah. Michael puts on the mask. Well, we turn on to the night scenes. There's a weird choice when we see the moment, which is one in one of the trailers, where Michael starts walking towards the Elrod house, and the camera is following him. They play the Halloween theme when this happens. I'm just saying I would have chosen something else. Yes, Michael is back on his rampage. I get that. But, hmm, Halloween theme at this moment. You you, the, you would have had a Halloween movie without a Halloween theme. Like, well, we, we have the Halloween dude, theme. Dude, do you even John Carpenter? God damn it, the man came back from his retirement to make music for this film. Okay, let me put it this way. Would you have added the Halloween theme when Michael goes to the Elward house in Halloween 2? Mm, kind of hard to say on such a, of a short notice. No, it's uh, building the tension. It's Kylva Kauhua. You can't play that song during that time. Okay, well, I just would have played it differently. <laughs> uh, then the coloring. Mm, there's uh, absence of blue light. Well, I realize this is a David Gordon Green Halloween, therefore he will set his own tone and leave his own mark, his footprint. But this film definitely has no blue light use. Uh, the tone is more like yellowish. Then again, this just might be the most fall-looking Halloween movie there is, so I applaud him for that. This is also one of the few Halloween movies that actually showcase you a Halloween ball or anything else kind of a Halloween happenings outside of simple decorations. Mm, yeah, Halloween in the previous movies has seemed like a very dead city where nothing happens, but here we have a little school party. Yeah, so somebody actually finally realized that it's Halloween. <laughs> then we have a character called Cameron Elam, which is the boyfriend of Allison, until the point where he kisses another woman in the ball. And this character... Henrik, why do we have this character? Because they never finished the storyline. Exactly. It doesn't seem like it. Cameron just disappears from the movie after they have this uh, kissing issue. Which I understand, kind of. But he never even gets killed. It seems like it's not finished. And there's few moments like that. That seem like these were something that could have been planned for the sequel. Or the other possibility is that they just didn't finish it and... And there's some weird directing going on here. Or it may just be, you know, on purpose because they are switching your expectations. They, they are giving you easy cannon fodder character and then actually do not kill him off like they would have done in every other entry on this franchise or in basically any other teenage slasher film 
or a lesser film altogether. Perhaps, yeah. Then there is the uh, quite elongated scene about the closet, where the friend of Allison is babysitting the young boy. The problem perhaps here is that we already know what happens at the end of this scene. Uh, more or less because of the trailer. So it takes you a little bit. Uh, it it takes you a little bit out of it. It's without tension. I, I thought it had quite a lot of tension. But no, it's a great scene. It's just I, maybe the trailer ruined it for me. Okay, it didn't ruin it for me. I, I like the comedy with the babysitter and the kid. And I did quite, quite a lot of... I did feel that this was quite a tense scene, even though I did know mm. pre-hand what is going to happen, but then again you kind of know pre-hand most of what's going to happen in this film simply by this being a Halloween film. Like, you have a babysitter that is not the main character and, well, it's obvious cannon fodder. Like, no way in hell that babysitter is gonna make it out of the film alive. A ruin is, uh, to a strong word. I did enjoy the scene. And this uh, child actor is, is really nice. Well yeah, played. Yeah, it's one of the better bits of comedy in this film. Which again did not bother me. Somewhere along the line we are introduced the Dr. Sartan character to Laurie. <laughs> and she even says that, uh, oh, you're the new Loomis. Maybe the best kill of this film is the moment when the Oscar character gets killed. Perhaps the most memorable scene. The one you can think, just like that. Even though, in this scene we are playing with the motion sensor lighting. I do not understand why they keep flickering like this, even though Michael Myers is moving. Which is again giving us the point, or the hint that, that this guy is just pure evil and nothing makes sense. Or somebody's flickering the light for him, or the lights are not working correctly, or it's not motion censored, or... I don't know, but it's a nice shot. Yeah, it's Michael Myers being supernatural once again. Kind of a dimming that line between is he human or is he something more. Yeah, but it was okay. Then we get to the Dr. Sartain rerouting. So in order to get Michael Myers to the house of Laurie, Dr. Sartain kills. Is it a sheriff for the deputy in this case? I think deputy. He was Officer deputy. Hawkins. Yeah, would make him a deputy, I guess. As far as I remember... The American police force, which I'm not completely familiar with, I I do collect that officer is lower on the ranks. Yeah, so he gets killed, Dr. Sartan. He kind of uh, hurts the mood and the atmosphere by putting the mask on his own face, even though just momentarily, and pays a huge fine for that, but unnecessary. Yeah, I, I like the themes. Played out here, it's just that the execution is kind of a honky as hell. Basically, uh, even though I can see what they were going for, and like I said, I, I like the theme in the background here on this moment, there is still the problem that Dr. Sartain plot twist just does not work as a individual moment in this film. And Dr. Sartain kind of trying on the mask and wondering how it feels to be Michael Myers is... That's the one moment in this film where the film dropped me for a, for an extremely short moment of time, but it still did that. Yeah, same. I thought there could have been a 
millions of different ways that you could have played this. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about these two cops who witnessed the weird behavior of the police car where Michael Myers and Sartain are? Could this be the throwback to Halloween 5 and the bumbling cops? Well, that's the first indication that would come to mind if I would kind of uh, start looking for counterparts of the cop characters from the previous films. Yeah, <laughs> a weird scene that goes for like at least half a minute or maybe a minute where they talk about their sandwiches. Yeah, it is a bit weird. At the same time, it brings some levity to the proceedings. There is the underlying idea that basically every character here is given at least something. A bit of personality in order to make you feel every victim that happens in this film. Which is a bit more than your average slasher film would actually deem necessary to do. We get to focus into the final battle area which is Laurie's third house once again. Funny that Laurie is keeping one closet that is similar to the original where she was trapped. Thankfully, at the end of this hands-on battle, Laurie loses for now and is thrown out of the building, which is what should happen. That was a good moment. It, it was a great callback to the original. Yeah, it was a definitely a throwback to H2O in my mind. Where Laurie is uh, stabbing like crazy Michael and then he finally falls to the dining area. And that also. Karen cheats Michael to come into view and they shoot him. This may be a character mistake as well. Because Michael never in the originals avoided getting shot. He was just like a machine that went on and did his thing. Here he is calculating. And waiting for the moment. He's listening to Karen. And Karen says, oh, I don't think I can do it. And he comes into view and gets blown off. It's not a huge problem. It's just what has not been seen before. It shows some intelligence from Michael's part. Mm. Then he's locked away downstairs. Suggested that he burns. But everyone who has gone through 11 episodes of this franchise knows that he will obviously not burn. And in the final frames, Allison is holding the knife. And I see this kind of uh, as a passing on the torch from Laurie to Allison. And if you stayed until the end of the credits, you will hear the familiar breathing sound, suggesting that, yeah, this is most likely not over. Looking at the box office. Yep. And even if it would be, it would still serve as a good nod to the fans of the original, who once again get that one familiar Halloween moment. Yeah, 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 it's kind of a double-edged thing. Some fans thought that this is an obvious suggestion that there's going to be a sequel after the Carpenter original because of the breathing and the presence of him being alive. And some people just kind of got it the other way around and just saying that, okay, he's out there and he he's gone. And that's all, folks. Yeah, it's not that people went into that kind of lengths, considering one simple breathing audio at the end credits of the film. Instead of taking the logical route and simply going by Jason Bloom's own statements that there will be sequel if this makes enough money. Yeah, God, I want Jason Blum's bank account. Same here, same here. God, 
Plumhouse, they are doing these extremely cheap horror movies. Cheap as in budget cheap. And look at this. This is estimated 10 million dollar production. And it's now 100 million in the box office. Good job. Good job. Yeah, you take a capable director, you give him small budget. And in exchange of smaller budget, you give him more free reign to do a movie that he likes to do. Smart formula. Now I understand why he's smiling in every interview. That is. Like, like this begs the question, why has this been so fucking hard for Hollywood all these goddamn years? Like, it, it's, not, it's not rocket science in, in the core of it. Like you, Exactly. Yeah. Just look at the original Halloween. Yeah, you take a little money, you use it wisely to make a good movie, and you get the income. Like, that's the formula. Yeah, instead, you have countless amounts of teenage slashers that use the same formula to be safe, I guess. But with a little bit of originality, you might just do a bang at the box office. And you would not need to cast Buster Rhymes in a desperate attempt to make back your own budget. No, no Buster Rhymes. <laughs> Trying to wipe my head clean from Buster Rhymes. Sorry, Buster Rhymes. No more Buster Rhymes. Overall thoughts about this movie. There's a bunch of things we could go through. Let's go through first the references to the old movies. Well, Halloween 1. Well, there's the killing of the mechanic, getting the overalls, Laurie appearing in the school window, Laurie disappearing from the front lawn at the end of the movie. Halloween 2. I read that they had the same ambulance logos and texts in the ambulances in Halloween 2. Halloween 3. The kids' masks, of course. The masks from Halloween 3. And Halloween 4. There's the closet door appearance that we wait for like five minutes. In Halloween 4, Jamie has this dream or these visions and um, Michael Myers is coming from the closet with a knife in the quite beginning moments of the movie. And so that's the throwback. To the okay, closet. yeah, I, I missed that one. I did get the throwbacks to Halloween 1 in the same scene uh, later yeah. on, but yeah, I, I missed the Halloween 4 throwback. Halloween 5... I can only think of the silly cops. Halloween 6, no idea if they implemented it anywhere. I I don't know. H2O, well, Laurie's taking a sip of that red wine so that Laurie alcoholism is implemented and the toilet scene. Halloween Resurrection, no idea. I didn't see Basta anywhere. Basta back end. Rob Zombie's Halloween 1 and 2, no idea. But I believe in the end moments I heard Michael grunting. Well, he does small grunting in the first one, but there's a grunting moment. Rob Zombie sure likes his Michael grunting. What I liked. Good cinematography. Mostly great performances. The drama aspect of the trauma elevates this movie into not only a horror movie, but more of an actual movie. And I like the original font. That's a nice touch. I like the pumpkin opening. What did you like? I liked how this movie handled Michael, the way how there is, how it once again plays with the aspect of is Michael a human being or is he a boogeyman? I like the fact that this movie kind of plays it to the both ends, in turns it humanizes Michael a lot and and then few scenes in it kind of shows you that something that would not completely fit into 
human interaction or how a person in his 60s could react. And in this way kind of shows you the, the possibility that Michael Myers is quite literally a boogeyman. It's something that Rob Zombie tried to do in his remakes before the producers got into the mix and messed up the whole thing. So it's it's nice to see that being pulled off here without the meddling producers. And I liked a lot of the themes this movie carried over. The theme of these effects that the first film has had on Laurie and the theme of Michael's silence being something that drives, that unsettles people and that lack of human interaction that Michael exhibits in every entry of this franchise. And in here it's played in the sense that that lack of interaction, that lack of communication is something that people find extremely troubling and which drives them off balance. Like it happens with the podcast guy and later on with Dr. Sartain. I I thought that was a good theme to tackle on, finally. And I did like the themes going through at the final confrontation. Like like the house going back into the setup of the mousetraps. And there was this kind of a Hansel and Gretel-esque feeling when they finally burn Michael alive. And, and there's those iron bars, kind of a, like the front plate of an oven, going in front of Michael as he burns at the cellar. I liked a lot of how tactical the final confrontation was from Laurie's side, where there's a lot of good elements of Laurie going through room to room and actually trying to play play the confrontation smartly, even though she kind of loses it as the moment goes on and she starts doing more and more these obvious mistakes. Like, she checks every room at the upstairs of her house instead of simply putting them on lockdown and this way exposes herself to danger or when she suspects that Michael is hiding in the closet. She does not open fire at the closet, but instead, you know, once again puts herself in risk by going off and actually checking the closet. Like, there are these tactical mistakes that she starts to do, and I was extremely goddamn on my edge and screaming at the woman of this film when Karen is in the basement waiting for Michael to come into the shooting distance. God damn, she refuses to pick up a shotgun, which would be the, the best weapon to take on, on that situation and on those kill distances. Instead of opting on taking a rifle, which is a goddamn lesser weapon and I... Like, what the hell has Lori thought her all these years? Perhaps the distance was enough that she calculated that with this rifle I will get the surest shot. The distance was close enough that she would have actually gotten better shot with a shotgun. I haven't and, used a shotgun, no comment. Yeah, and she could have actually hung in a couple of more shots against Michael with a shotgun compared to the hunting rifle that she opts to use. Somehow I didn't care so much about the Loris preparation 
because she's so obsessed about the preparation. She has made so much effort for this and kept this going apparently for 40 years. There is a slight believability issue in my mind. Maybe the biggest issue is that somehow, you know, it's maybe maybe for some women. I understand maybe this is some kind of a empowering thing to see. Laurie Strode empower herself with a shotgun. But for me, it's not, uh, let's say, necessary. I don't need to see that. But if you want to differentiate with H2O, alcoholism and just kind of struggling with this. And then finally picking, of course, the axe and being the crazy woman with the fire axe. You wanted to play this differently. I can see that. And here Laurie is more of like a Sarah Connor-esque character. For me, I would say Michael would be scarier had she not prepared so many surprises for Michael and the audience inside the house. Because it's now it's like a more of a home alone-esque situation. It's not a big problem, it's just a small little gripe I have. Yeah, I, I also felt that the trap element of the house went a bit too far. But at the same time, I can also see the filmmaker's logic here, because Laurie Strode would have to do something in this vein, not to be a complete goddamn jackass, since it's been shown that Michael has had such of an overpowering effect on her life and the fact that she has always been waiting for Michael to finally escape. Like, she has never actually succumbed to the notion that Michael would stay locked forever. She has always been sure that at some point Michael manages to escape and comes after her once again. And if this is the mental state that you are carrying with you, you kind of, in that case, you have to start the preparations for the, what you perceive is the invaluable confrontation. Yeah, granted. I want to look at Halloween 1, 2, 3 a little closer and how they are set up. The location is always established quite clearly. You know roughly where you are what you have in the vicinity, what the actors can do there, where they can go, the distances, stuff like this. In Halloween, it's the two houses setting. In Halloween 2, it's the hospital. In Halloween 3, it's the small town. Halloween 2018 has the small town, yes, but it focuses in so many different plot points that it suffers as a result because you do not have this one-on-one that you have in the original. Don't get me wrong, you have a lot of great stuff going on here. You have the drama element with Laurie, who's suffering with the trauma. You have the interesting family dynamics overall. You have Michael doing his thing. But then you have the deputy, then you have the sheriff, the podcasters. You have Dr. Sartain. You have Oscar. You have Allison's boyfriend. There's a lot going on here, and the movie doesn't give enough room for one of these points, and seems to give kind of equal screen time for all of this. And sometimes you don't know why you're following this storyline, for example, the Allison's boyfriend. Like, how important is is this in, like, the big picture? There's good stuff going on here, but the suspense 
is being hurt because the movie is not centering more on, I feel, Laurie, Michael. Yeah, too many side stories for me. But then again, you had a boatload of side stories also in Halloween 2. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you have... You have the main location, which is the hospital, which is where majority of the movie does take place. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you are also following the cops, kind of going uh, uh, going through the locations and trying to control the situation after the carnage of the first film. And then there is Dr. Loom is still trying to hunt down Michael. And then there is even, even the fucking Smith Crow comes to play when there is the power struggle between the Smithscrow and Dr. Loomis in the sense that can Dr. Loomis still continue his manhunt on Michael or is he forced to return back to Smithscrow and just leave the situation to others? I agree. Maybe this is uh, one of the biggest uh, at the same time advantages and at the same time sort of shortcomings of the film maybe it should have been longer to give more air and breathing room for Laurie who is most of the movie actually absent but then again there is only so much that you can do with Laurie here since mm-hmm. w- w- once again the whole dynamic between Laurie and Michael is one sided mm-hmm. but given that this movie's whole idea and the whole reason why to retcon everything from past was to to bring it back to the basics yes and the basics include the lingering shots the looming presence the building of the horror but here it's so many things are going on you just never really get to build that same type of a horror but it's not like a slaughter fest i don't get that feeling either it's just this movie has a bit of an identity problem I think this movie is a combination of tipping your hat to the original and doing what the original did and staying true to the original film and at the same time doing a Halloween film on a year 2018. Yeah, but it's not staying true to the original. I, I would say that it mostly stays quite true to the original. Totally, I don't see that. Where I see that is... The portrayal of Michael Myers in the sense that he's, again, more of a man. Perhaps even more so than the, in the original. Let's talk about the performance of Michael Myers. His walking is a bit weird, I find, in this film. I understand Michael Myers is like 60 now, but he looks very mechanic in his movements. People have said that this is very close to the original cat-like walk. And that just walk, Nick, just walk type of thing. But, sorry to say, I I couldn't find that here. I, on the other hand, actually thought that this was pretty close to the original. Walking-wise, the most kind of a... Where it differentiated most from how Michael operated in the first film is basically the moments when Michael turns his head or turns his body, which are more kind of a... They are more strict movement-wise. Uh, yeah, it's so hard to put in the words about some guys walking. But however, I feel that this movie is stuck in the past in in many ways, unnecessarily so. So, for example, the Dr. Sartain Loomis throwback. You just have to, have to kind of 
put it in there. Like, this movie could have just played it pretty simply between Laurie and Michael. But wh- once again, wh- what would you do with Laurie and Michael in the end? Well, good, good question, but why do you have to tie it so much with the original? I understand that it's a, like a sequel to the original, but uh, maybe less focus on what happened in the original and just get kind of moving on from there and do your own thing and not this Dr. Loomis throwbacks and connections these podcasters it's a good plot device but it's overplayed this fire and ice or Michael and Laurie juxtaposition Ah. so would you wish to have more Michael and Laurie facing off or less Michael and Laurie facing off I would like the movie to tell what is its main focus because there's so much focus that I would like the movie to grab onto something with me here. Either it's going to be Michael and Laurie or then just Michael doing his thing and not Michael and the babysitter and the deputy and the sheriff and the podcasters and the kid with a shotgun in the crashed bus. But those are kind of the people you have to have if you are going to make a movie where Michael does his thing. Because Michael doing his thing is actually pretty uninteresting for most parts and is over extremely quickly. Like, you you need to have some story in your film. And Michael Myers, if something, has never been a character that can handle a story. We did follow Michael extensively in the first one, and it did work. Just what? because, just, just with his looming presence, I understand you cannot do this in 2018. But the, yeah, it tries to please everybody and then just doesn't know what it is. Michael Myers did not have a story in the original. Like, wh- what little story you had, and emphasis on word little, was almost purely on Laurie. Just, you build this entire retcon to break the link with Laurie and Michael. Uh, that's one thing. But then you try to do the link anyway, without that angle. Yep. So... But w- once again, you know, you have to have a story in the end. And a- and in, you in do he- get a boatload of stories here. Yep. And I- in that sense, you know, to get, get that boatload of stories, you also need to rebuild the link between Michael and Laurie if you want to keep Laurie in your film. Because the main story that this film tackles on in the end is Laurie's trauma and the extent that the first confrontation with Michael kind of carries over in her life. Perhaps the thing is that you cannot have a story because the original Halloween didn't have much of a story. It was more of like just just lingering around these very banal events and Michael stalked and killed people. That's it. That's the plot. And so here, because you have so many places where to go to, you know, you never get that claustrophobia feeling. And I do not get that kind of isolation, moment felt with isolation. Yes, Laurie is like having a confrontation with Michael in the house alone for like a few minutes in the end. But apart from that, it is like a team collaboration of three women against one man. And therefore, I would argue that the film's finally is not very scary. And it's a non-ending it happens quite suddenly. Like obviously Michael still lives, and Laurie has burned her house down for nothing, and all the Strouds survive. I have to wonder what they take this next, because is Laurie 
Jamie Lee Curtis going to reprise her role because she survives. I guess you can have to kind of kill her all over again or do something with that thing so you can finish that off. Jamie Lee Curtis has stated that she's interested in returning for the sequel if Gordon Green is the one directing. Really? Where did you see that? It was one of the news that I came across when doing my research for this. Mm. And I've heard that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are not interested in returning. So that could answer that question. Yeah, perhaps, which is funny because at one point they were thinking of doing two movies back to back or even a trilogy. Then again, this one takes quite a lot of steps to make it sure that there would not be sequel to this one. Like No, because it, it, it leaves everything open. I, I wouldn't me. say, well, you know, burning your house on Michael's neck is that leaving that much anything in the open. You trap Michael Myers into a death trap room with no escape and then torch the whole goddamn place. Do you, though? Wasn't it established that there's like a back door in that room where you can get out? No, I I don't remember a notion of back door. Yeah, yeah. It's just somebody mentioned it. I have missed it myself. Okay. Could be, of course. Could be that I just missed that one. Oh, this is the first time that Michael appears to kill a kid. The guy with the shotgun in the bus. I somehow knew the moment I saw that one. In the theater, I knew that you are going to have an issue with this one. Kids were kind of always off the table in every single film. Uh, why is he killing a kid now? I just have to wonder. Head-scratching moment. Okay, so you just pick and choose. Yeah, why would he not kill the kid? Like, what motive would he have not to kill the kid? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, in the original, there's nothing where... He specifically avoids the kids. All the avoiding of kids happens in Halloween too. Well, with the babies in the hospital. Yeah. Rob Zombies Halloween and something else. Yeah, and you know, not killing a baby is something that Michael does here too. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, the man still has a quite a big heart in the end. Maybe the biggest issue with this is that even in the original, it seemed that this was established such that Michael's targets are people who, well, okay, I guess we get to the symbolism shit again, but Michael's targets were people who did have sexual intercourse, or they did something that was, well, they did some haram, even though they don't believe in that particular religion. And I really do not actually believe in that interpretation of the proceedings in the first Halloween. Well, apparently that does not hold water at all. Which, in a sense, in a sense, this is great. Because all the snobby motherfuckers who talk about Halloween in the way that it's anti-feminism and it's doing this and doing that because of this and that. Now there's no rhyme or reason anymore. Yeah, pretty much. You can thank thank the film all you like. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks, David. When it comes to the whole horror movies or woman-hating... And basically misogyny in a celluloid form. I, I've more seen that as reading too much into a few instances in horror movies. And basically then not reading anything else that goes on in those movies. And in that sense I really do not get the, this Michael being the punishing force of 
breaking societal norms in the original Halloween film either. Like sure, from the list of targets, there were a bunch of teenagers that were trying to have sex, but I always read it more so that they died simply because they happened to be in a wrong place at the wrong time, and having sex had no part whatsoever in Michael kind of choosing to kill them. Or Michael did not choose to kill them because they were having sex and having alcohol. Given that John Carpenter being in this product as a artistic consultant, not officially with that title, but he was anyway, gives kind of legitimacy for the argument that we are right and all the snobby reviewers can can get the artistic finger from me and David Gordon Green, so there you go. But making Michael like kill people instantly with no prior getting to know the victim type of long-term stalking, it takes away from the boogeyman aspect of this character. Just moving instantly from house to house, to enter kill, enter kill, enter kill, is also not what Michael did in the original. And the boogeyman aspect comes from you know, the Donald Pleasants and just building, building and then, ha, attacking. Yep. But, but you know, uh, uh, I know, yeah. it's a hard balancing act, 2018. And also the reason why Michael Myers stalked his victims so much in, in the original and why he did not go more from place to place and killing on random was because Michael Myers in the end was too goddamn lazy to walk one street from end to end. Yeah, the thing is, is horror is so hard, you know. There are some universal things that everybody seems to be afraid of, but the formula doesn't work for everybody in every case, and everybody is afraid of a little bit different things, and, you know, the fucking art... You can't figure it out. There's no absolute terms. What pleases and what works. There, there is some universal things. Thank God. So science works there as well. But uh, I suppose individual experiences are what dominate movies. Yeah, and that is true. It comes down to individual experiences. And horror is, in the end, extremely hard cinema genre to pull off. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it didn't succeed in the original Halloween either. At least not for me. It wasn't scary for you. No, it was it was intense and it was exciting. But like I stated before, I did not suffer any sleepless nights or had trouble sleeping. I did not have to sleep with a light on or watch any closet door after seeing Halloween. So when it comes to being scared, when it comes scary, there's movies that have had a lot more of an impact on me than Halloween and had made me much more scared than Halloween ever did. Now I'm really curious. Like, was it like the human centipede? Ah, something that has had an effect on me. Exorcist. Yeah, Exorcist is one. Also the first paranormal activity, even though I know, I know I'm in marginal group here. Very. Yep. And I fully accept that. But, yep, you can laugh all you want, but the first one. 
<laughs> what really worked for me as did the first spin-off, the Tokyo Night. Okay. Some others that have well was not scary in a sense what I was being shown, but which really caused me a couple of nights sleep as a philosophical kind of a thinking point was the original martyrs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yep. Like I said, nothing that I saw in the film was that haunting to me. But the overlying question at the, you know, under the film is is something that really did trouble me after seeing the film and had an effect on me. Some Asian horror films hit me pretty deeply. Some of them are just, I would argue, boringly or badly shot, but some are really great and they still build that atmosphere that American horror films kind of used to do. And they play with the psychological aspect. The original ring, yeah, it's it's okay. Yeah, that was. I also like the first American remake. That was decent. The Exorcist, of course, and there are some random movies that I remember, like Injection. I believe it's a Korean horror film that happens in a hospital, as it happens as well. But that's the trick with the kind of a horror films that has an effect on you. They are always individual cases. And yeah. later on it's it's kind of a nightmare trying to point out the one aspect. Why the film had such of an impact on you. How would you rate the Haddonfields of Halloween franchise? In the sense that you can buy the Haddonfield. Because in this film it's fine. I would say the original Halloween, Halloween 2, of course, are the first. Then maybe now, after that, is David Gordon Green Halloween. Halloween 6 brings back the like the feeling of the Haddonfield as well. It seems like the houses are in the same intersections and stuff. The Halloween 4 or 5 in the Utah shooting, just like Halloween 6, but in Halloween 4 and 5, I don't get the same illusion as much. Then Halloween 8 is, is Halloween 8. I don't know, I never analyzed sounds that much. What but if you think about the music? I would say the original synthcore from the first film and then this one, the Halloween 2018 version. I much enjoyed the the new theme. It has a more pronounced oomph, oomph, oomph in the background, but I like it and it's very radio-friendly. Yeah, there's those hard-hitting guitar riffs that... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that third guy. Yeah, in the music department. Yeah, Daniel A. Davies is the guitar. And it's quite minimalistic in many of the tracks. It's used just right. It's a very minimalistic soundtrack to be Halloween 2018 soundtrack. It's good. I liked it. It's hard to find a soundtrack these days that where they just keep it so simple. And here they really do keep it pretty much to the basics and don't try to pull any additional smart fancy tricks. Like uh, Alan Howard seems that he got kind of bored with his own music and he was trying as the series evolved to try more and more tricks. Well, that happens to everyone, I guess. But yeah, happy that uh, Carpenter decided to keep it very simple. Not as simple as in the original. Original was basically just John Carpenter hitting two notes on a keyboard. It was, and I really do love the Halloween 2 soundtrack as well. But uh, original is the original... Let's say I put the original first, it's the basics, the foundation, the core. In Halloween 2 there's some kind of ear piercing, (laughs) 
synth sounds sometimes, so I would put uh, this latest soundtrack on the position three. Henrik, uh, I think the time has come. Now, Henrik, would you recommend Halloween 2018? Absolutely. It's a great fall back to form. Well, it's obviously post Me Too movement film, but this one uses it as an advantage. It's not overpowering, yeah. Yeah, but it does bring up the point of the three generations of Strode woman coming together to kind of finish off Michael. And there is the aspect of kind of a passing on your past onto others and at the same time burning away your past and your childhood that all come into play here on this film. So I, I would say Halloween 2018 as a summary, it is it is the best possible sequel you could get today. Alright. I would not recommend Halloween 2018. I am most shocked and amazed. Well, maybe you should be. And there, as mentioned, there is so much that I like that they did get right here. But at the same time, this movie manages to be frustrating. Frustrating is the word. It gets so much right. And then on the other end, it's like, I don't find the central focus enough. I don't find something to cling on to enough here that I would know what to recommend here. If I would recommend it, I don't know what it would actually be. Like, I find I'm even struggling to say what this movie is. So it lacks the simplicity that I was looking for. It retcons everything and at the same time it doesn't really give me a good reason to retcon everything. So with a kind of a broken heart, I have to say that all this waiting and interesting interviews and everything seemed to be looking right, but... It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. I can't recommend it. Because I can't answer the why. Why this movie exists. They said they were going to do a bunch of things and then they don't do them. In the simplicity. I really wanted to love this movie. And I came to the theater with pretty neutral expectations. So basically, I was just, okay, give me your best shot. Let's see what you can bring. But no. It just brings me to the same old point that... It seems that nobody is able to quite get to the magic of Halloween 1 and Halloween 2, but that I guess goes without saying. I don't know why though. Suppose it's just the current atmosphere that limits the artist. Oh, then it's just purely the case that Halloween 1 and 2 are two special movies for you, so that any film could ever reach that level of meaningness. Yeah, but at the same time, I think you are giving too much value to words like fandom or... I just think there are bloody good movies. But granted, I probably cannot have like a balanced view in the sense that I have seen this as a kid, as have you, though. But something psychologically really clicked here. I think there are people who just get this obsession about this character. And I can see that obsession in a way in you because you are... Well, you are really able to analyze this character there's like a shit ton of thing you can talk about michael myers that's the fascination and everything after carpenter originals just doesn't quite hit the mark and uh, i was not expecting them to hit the mark but also this is not what i expected to see that's okay 
but and I'm really glad that many people like it and it's doing well. Great. More Halloween fans. It's good when people are happy. <laughs> Maybe I'm I can't avoid being more critical than others because I know this franchise so well. Frankly, I thought that David Gordon Green would have been thinking about the series in the same way and he would know maybe like as much about the character as I do and maybe he does. He just is David Gordon Green and not Kari Oyala, so what can you do? Would you improve something in the film? Uh not really. I would mess with the Dr. Sartain plot twist, but at the same time I do acknowledge that it's basically mandatory by the blank slate Michael. Yeah, how about Allison drives the car to the Laurie Strode property and somehow Michael has latched himself into the car and follows them there for, for the simple reason that he wants to kill Allison at this particular moment. Would take kind of a too much effort on Michael's side. I don't know. Favorite scene? I would say it's that during the moment, or this is basically just a shot in a scene, but during the moment when Laurie is hunting Michael on the upstairs of her house, she goes room to room holding her rifle and there is this great dynamic shot of the camera being behind Laurie, giving you the perspective behind her back as she enters the room. And then there's an extremely quick turn when Laurie checks the corner of that room. And during that turn, it becomes a point of view shot of basically from Laurie's perspective. First person shot or shot from the end of the rifle. Extremely quick tilt of the camera to the corner of the room. And when it comes to military tactics, when it comes to checking the corners at the entry, I think that's... Perhaps the best take, most dynamic shot I've ever seen portraying that movement. Alright, I like the beginning, the first act when things feel very documentary-ish in the asylum. When it's very slow-paced and realistic. And I also like the third act, the same moments that you mentioned when Laurie is alone with the shape in the upstairs. However, maybe I was looking for some slow reveal instead of that jump scare-esque coming of Michael. Like in the original, they could have played something like that, where Michael just slowly appears from the darkness, maybe from behind Laurie, and there's this stalking moment behind her before she even realizes what's going on. But hell, it's at least it's not repetition of the first one. Any favorite quotes? I would guess... Officer Hawkins returning quote to Laurie as Laurie confesses that she has hoped and prayed that Michael would escape all these years. That's a funny edit because the trailer says that Laurie is talking to the deputy, but in the movie she's talking to the doctor. Well, she's talking to both of them. Mm, but the, where she's looking at. Yeah, in that sense. For me, I liked when Laurie is in Judy Greer's house and says, I have tried to protect you and prepare you. Now we have to hunt him down. And Judy Greer says, I'm trying to prepare dinner for my family. <laughs> to add to our discussions about how the world really is, Judy Greer also follows this with the following line. The world is not a dark and evil place. It is full of love and understanding. And then moments later she says, Get out! 
Yeah, and at the end of all of that, she's covering in the basement with a rifle and burning a man alive. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, no darkness, peace and love, and all that jazz. Also, Oscar's line, when he's in the property of someone with the automatic lighting system, he says to Allison, They were feeding me guacamole in all these sexy ways. <laughs> Must be Danny McBride. Must be Danny McBride. Their entire scene all together is quite funny and humorous. Yeah. But hey, let's rank the Halloween movies. Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. No, you're not. Yeah, I'm like, very like, curious. Like, like we, we can just back off from the entire conversation and yeah. s- s- save us the headache and the heartache that this is going to cause. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's your opinion, man. Well, it is going to be your blood pressure medicine <laughs> a- a- at work here. So get so, your pills ready. Let's get the conflict going on. That's what we want in this podcast, right? A little bit of a... Yeah, we have been way too civil on this episode until this part. All right, so should we start in the worst or the best ones? Let's start with the best ones. All right. Oh, you go first. What's your first one? Well, my first one, obviously, is is the original. Oh, not Rob Zombie's Halloween (laughs) 2. No, not Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Yeah, mine is as well, Halloween 1978. But now when we get to the second one, there's no surprise for anyone that for me it's Halloween 2. And these two, they are very close to each other, even though Halloween 2 does a lot of missteps. It just does the horror scene so well that I'm always kind of... Like on one day, maybe next day you can ask me, I praise Halloween 2 to the moon and then the next day it's Halloween. But okay, on the overall... John Carpenter's Halloween 1978 is the best movie on the whole. The Halloween 2 is terrifying as hell. And in, in some sense, it's my personal favorite still. In, because just these certain particular scenes sent me to the edge and have terrified me from a very young age. But Henrik's second favorite, what is that? It's really co- close call between Halloween 2 and Halloween 2018. Like, they are almost back-to-back, almost tied, but if I would have to choose between the two, I go with Halloween 2 yeah. as as well. If I would have to point a finger why Halloween 2 in the end pulls it for me over Halloween 2018, it is the fact that I admire how closely Halloween 2 follows from the events of the previous film. The fact that it picks off just minutes after the last one ended, and you can just look first two Halloweens back to back. Like, having that close continuation, it takes shit ton of work. It's extremely hard to pull off. It's way easier to make a sequel if your movie's timeline has even one year between the entries. But Halloween 2 picks off immediately after the first one ends. Any special love for the creepy hospital corridors? No, not that much. And uh, the corridors of Halloween 2 were not the creepiest of creepy hospital corridors I've seen. I do love the cinematography in in some of the scenes. For example, the bloodbath scene at the end of the film, where the one nurse has been kind of uh, drained out of her blood to the hospital floor. Yeah. 
But once again, you get extremely great camera work also in Halloween 2018. So when it comes to visuals, it's a tie. Visual-wise, Halloween 2018 is perhaps even stronger than Halloween 2. But Halloween 2 picks off immediately after the events of the original. Number three, what's your choice? At the number three position, I have Halloween 2018. Okay. It goes straight there with flying colors. Well, for me, I have surprised myself, but there is nothing else to take the spot. So it is Halloween H2O. And Halloween H2O, I think, is a better finish if Halloween 2018 is any kind of finish. Obviously, it isn't. Halloween H2O gives like a proper finish for the series. There is no better ending than cutting off the beast's head. And no, it's not a fucking paramedic. The wrong guy's head. You mean... No, 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 no. But that was the proper ending until Kevin Williamson and Mustafa Akkad fucked it up. It's uh, definitely hell of a lot weaker than Halloween and Halloween 2. And even the setting in in that school area is not working as well for me. But hell, Jamie Lee Curtis is back. Just Hartnett is great here. And it's a very linear event of happenings. You know, you know where you are, kind of basically. You, you are set on the same premises... Kind of like in the originals. So it's okay. Blah, blah, blah. What's your number four? My number four slot goes to Halloween 2. Yep. And I was I was expecting you to lash out immediately. <coughs> well, I already know your love affair with this film. Oh. What more to say about that? Except, yep. Well, for me, it might be a bit surprising as well, but it's Halloween Season of the Witch. Just because this movie still has the carpentry and atmosphere. And the cinematography is Tin Candy that you saw in Halloween 1 and 2. The story is what it is. It doesn't make any sense. But hey, it's still a fun movie. Spot number 5. H20. Alright. For me, it's... This was a tight call. <sighs> but... Uh, uh, I guess I have to give it to Halloween 2018. Still, strong drama. Pretty decent watch, but leaves you cold. Number six. Would be Halloween 4 in this end. Same here. Yeah. Halloween 4. Pretty much the last Halloween movie I've given a recommendation on this podcast. Yeah. So the only movies that I gave recommendation was Halloween 1, Halloween 2, Halloween H2O and... uh, and actually Halloween 3 as well. Halloween 2018 onwards, it's uh, all basically a dislike. Halloween 4 is an okay return, but that's with 2018 too many problems, so I have put it there. Number 7. Would be Rob Zombie's Halloween 1. Alright. Well, honestly, I thought that still Halloween 5 has that kind of an 80s touch, that certain kind of atmosphere creepiness, even though it's a terrible movie. I have put it to number seven. Halloween 5 kind of pieces off all the goodwill I could give it to the film by mishandling the Jamie storyline so badly. No doubt about that. Number eight. At the number eight spot, it would be finally Season of the Witch on my list. The night when everybody comes home. Yeah, to watch TV. <laughs> I still hold a crutch 
towards the film on basically the final payoff. When you find out what it's all about and everything that ties into that solution. And it's not a proper Halloween film in a sense. But basically at this point I'm already struggling and grasping at straws trying to push it as far as I can before I have to mention some of the later entries on the franchise. I wish they could have been successful with the anthology route, but Halloween 3 was not successful, and therefore more Michael Myers, which I still would say worked best in the original Carpenter's version, and all the sequels to suffer from the fact that you really can't do a sequel to Halloween. But on my 8th spot is Rob Zombie's Halloween, purely for the fact that there is some originality there to be found. Number 9 would be Halloween 5. For me, it would be Halloween 6. This movie is so fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> this brings to the front everything. It's, it, it explains everything. And in the most silliest way. I think the uh, scriptwriter was on drugs. Well, he was on something. I can give you that one. Yeah. Number 10. And in my 10th spot, it's it's Halloween 6. Like, like the okay. fu- fucking abysmal bottom touch of the Thorn Cult. Yeah. It's it's still not quite the worst that mm-hmm. this, this this has to offer, but it's definitely... We are definitely at the bottom here. Yeah. My 10th would be Halloween Resurrection. The dumb fuckery in the Myers house. Number 11. And here we have... I've tried not to mention this film as long as I can on this list, but yeah, Halloween Resurrection. Jesus fucking Christ. My 11th movie is Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Yep, we all have our opinions on Halloween 2. Your opinion, unfortunately, happens to be the wrong one. But Yours yeah. too, too bad. You can uphold your wrong opinions here on your podcast. <laughs> I can definitely see the dislike and the hate for Halloween 2. Like I said, said in the episode when we were covering the film, it's most definitely not for everyone. It's not even for most of the people. It's for that very, very tiny segment of people who can connect with the anger that goes behind the camera. Like, that's the point. You either get on with the anger and the hatred, or then you end up hating Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. I see your point. You know, this happens in a lot of movies. There are points that the director makes, like, latch on to that, take that, that's a good idea, right? Like, yeah, I got this great idea, like, come on and get this treat. You know you like it, but I did not. Yeah, and that's, you know, like you have brought out in the previous episodes. We are in a different way in this sense. You try to kind of live to the utmost rationality and let rational thought and process guide you and shun the feelings. And I, on the other hand, kind of a... I'm more trying to pull off a balancing act between the two. So in that sense, a film whose merits are purely on the feeling side. 
that being the anger and hatred and getting along with that. It's kind of easy to see that you really do not connect with it. Yeah, I noticed that your decision was totally feeling-based and you kind of acknowledge that in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 episodes by saying that world is a grim and ugly place or something in that vein. But it's not. It's not flowers and it's not grim. It just is doing its thing. Yeah, and that's my that's, yeah, and that yeah. that point, you know, that difference between how we, how the two of us see the world and see our surroundings. I would say that's the driving issue between us when it comes to Rob Zombies Halloween Two. Hmm. Perhaps, yeah. I I give it to you that I didn't think about it at all at kind of from your viewpoint when I saw it. But still, you know, it's one of those moments when you go, aha, that's what he meant. But still, nah, so what? Yep. Do you want to name the favorite performance of the entire series? Uh, I take a pass, to be honest. I really have not given these aspects enough consideration. Yeah, but Donald Pleasance. Oh yeah, well, Donald Pleasance really is the holding mark of the entire franchise. Pretty much being the in- entire franchise for the longest part. Yeah. My favorite scene of the entire franchise would be the Halloween 2 hospital chase scene. Because it's encarved in my mind forever. Yeah, here comes the fanboy aspect, I guess. Because I cannot tell the difference between many of the Jason sequels. Yeah. Or the Friday 13th. It's just a mesh. It took me like an eternity <laughs> to watch all of them for some reason. Because... I always thought that they were kind of a snoozy films, like nothing happens there, it's just people getting slaughtered. That, yeah, the, especially on the later parts, where it even takes forever for the fucking slaughtering to start. Yeah, but I finally watched them, it might have been last year, when I finally decided, okay, let's see what this series is all about, and... Well, Henrik, we have finally watched the entire Halloween series, as it is now in 2018. How do you feel? I'm actually... I'm exhausted as hell, and somewhat happy, actually quite happy, that we are finally done with the franchise. Because, Me too. Yeah, because doing these episodes on this pace, so close to each other, and going through 11 movies has really been a tough exercise. It also might be a good idea to take a long break before touching next franchise. Good idea. On this level. So, you know what? I believe I have been Curry and you have been Bertie. I... Or... I, I can't... You know, close enough. Uh, at this point, I even... I don't know who I am. So I take your word for it. <laughs> Thanks once again for joining us, and it looks like our joiners are even more so now. We have more listeners than before, which is always a great thing to see. So, next episode, what is it about? I believe we have the email. Let's start our international cinema part with a Polish movie. So, I hope you will not have your prejudices against international cinema, and you will join us when we will be, once again, extremely funny and irresistible. So, see you in one week. Adios, amigos. Adios from here, too.
Maikkeli syö rottia.